0: Welcome to the Liquid Church Podcast, a place where you can hear the timeless truth of God's Word in a way that's culturally relevant and cutting edge. We hope you'll discover how God's story relates to your own and that you will leave feeling encouraged. Thanks for joining us today and enjoy the message. Hey guys, it's so good to see you. It's so, I'm so glad that I get to be here today for a bunch of different reasons, not the least of which is, as Tim said, for me, this feels uh, in so many ways like a homecoming. Like I feel like I'm surrounded by family and certainly for me, uh, New Jersey feels like home. In fact, you know, as Tim said, I moved here in 2008 and I have to say making the move from Melbourne, Australia to New Jersey was a lot easier than making the move from New Jersey to Atlanta. There was a lot less cultural shift for me. I, there was not as much stuff that I had to change. So Jersey has always felt like home for me. I moved here in 2008, as Tim said, to become the first online pastor here at Liquid. And we were here. In fact, my family, so we lived in the US for a total of about 14 years. We spent seven years, uh, just over seven years, in Atlanta. But the rest of that time was right here in New Jersey in fact we've been in, we lived in New Jersey so long that we were part my whole family was part of the very first Camp Rock who was at the very first Camp Rock yeah we were part of that very first Camp Rock all those years ago and we came back for the second one as well we lived in Jersey so long in fact that um you know i've i've spent summer in Cape May i've seen snow on the sand at LBI i have had breakfast, for, uh, breakfast at a diner at 1am, I discovered the miracle of disco fries. I also lived here so long that I saw the final Bon Jovi concert at the Old Giant Stadium, and I scalped tickets to a Bruce Springsteen concert in Newark with Pastor Tim. That is a true story. You have to ask Tim about it at some point. Like that's how long I've been living. Uh, I lived in New Jersey and we absolutely loved it. In fact, we lived in Madison, New Jersey for the whole time that we were living in this state. And it was interesting to me because right down the road from where we lived in Madison, there was this Jewish synagogue. And one day I decided I'm going to go and meet the rabbi who runs that place. And so I started meeting with him and started having coffees with him. And I would actually, every other week, I would go and have a coffee with him and sit through his Torah class. And Rabbi Lubin and I became really good friends. And after about a year of me hanging out with him, I worked up the courage to ask him why he doesn't follow Jesus. And his answer absolutely floored me. See, we would get together and we would have uh, these coffees together. He would make the most, the hottest coffee I've ever had, filled to the brim, right? Black coffee. It was like wicked. And I, so I did this every other week for a year. We became really good friends. And over one of those coffees, the topic of Jesus came up and I, and I asked him why he personally didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. And he said something that surprised me. He said he didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah because Jews judge a rabbi by the behavior of their followers. Jews judge a rabbi by how their followers act, how they speak, how they conduct themselves, their attitudes, their behaviors. Now, if you're someone here today who calls themselves a follower of Jesus... Just let that sink in for a second. Rabbi Lubin explained to me that he believed Jesus was this great Jewish rabbi, but he couldn't accept Jesus as the Messiah because he said so many of Jesus' followers have done so much dev- caused so much devastation throughout history. And I remember when he told me that, I felt so frustrated. I was frustrated that my friend, had made a decision to not follow Jesus because of the behavior of some of his followers. I was so frustrated, I asked Rabbi Lubin, can you please unpack that just a little bit for me? And he went on to explain something that has, quite honestly, shaped my faith ever since he said these words to me. See, when I asked him to further explain what he meant by it, he said this. He said, the behavior of a follower reflects the authority of the rabbi. The behavior of a follower reflects the authority of a rabbi. Let's close in prayer. No, I'm not finished with it. I'm not finished. Unfortunately for some of you, I'm not finished yet. But honestly, can I I just say this? In all honesty, if, you, if you're here today, if you're watching online, if you're listening on a podcast and you call yourself a follower of Jesus and that does not challenge you, then there's nothing else I can say on stage today that will challenge you. If that statement by Rabbi Lubin doesn't challenge you or convict you at all, then I honestly don't know what will. In fact, whether you're joining us online, if you're listening to this message via podcast on your commute into the city, if you're watching this on YouTube a month, a week, a year from now, and you're a Christian, can I, or if you're in the room as well, if I can, can I let you in on something that your unchurched, non-believing family and friends may not want you to know? Here's the thing. They agree with Rabbi Lubin. The only difference is they judge Jesus's authority based on your behavior. They'd make a determination whether or not Jesus is everything that we say he is or that Jesus is everything he said he was throughout scripture by your behavior. You see, you tell people, about what it means to follow Jesus in everything you do. Every word, every action, every the way that you respond, your attitude, every social media post, the way you drive down the New Jersey Turnpike. (laughs) Everything you do tells people something about Jesus because it reflects what Jesus has done in your life. And that's because the story you tell about your faith either invites people into, an, into a conversation or invites them into an argument. Or should I put it this way? The story we tell about our faith either invites people into a conversation or incites them into an argument. The things that we post, the way that we comment, the way that we respond, the way that we welcome people or keep them at arm's length, it all reflects our faith. It all reflects Jesus. Now, my rabbi friend, he shared this with me several years ago now, but I think it's more relevant right now than, than ever before. And that's because according to Gallup research in 2008, the year that I arrived in New Jersey with my family, Gallup came out with some information that showed that 62% of U.S. adults identified as members of a church. 62%. That was pretty good in 2008. But Gallup updated their research at the end of 2021, and what they found was only 47% of U.S. adults now identify as a member of a church. We've started to see this decline, and this wasn't because of COVID in the world. It's because of indifference in the world. People have become indifferent to the church, and so this decline keeps happening. Gallup also showed in that same year that 22% of Christians attend church every week. Think about that. 22% of the people who say they're Christians, who say they follow Jesus, who say that they're a member of a church, only 22% of them attend church every week. Nearly 80% of people who are on our team, who believe what we believe or what most of us believe, attend church on a regular basis. Even the people who attend church have stopped attending church. And this is true And most alarming, when you think about the next generation. Recent Pew Research that came out earlier this year showed that just 24% of 13 to 17-year-olds see faith as important. Just 27% of that same age group prays. And there are just 40% of teenagers today who have certainty about God. Only 40%. That means there are 60% of people in your high schools in New Jersey who are growing up unsure that there even is a God. And if there is a God, they're not really sure if that God is for them. Okay, now I get it. This is the 11 o'clock service, but still, I threw a bunch of numbers at you. Too many numbers for a church service. I totally understand that. But the point of me doing that is that everybody who's watching this message today, whether it's online or on-site... You guys are in the minority. And here's the thing, if you came to church last week or you watched online last week, you're in the minority of the minority. So I wonder, how does that make you feel? Seeing those numbers, hearing this, uh, this research, how does that make you feel right now? For some of you, I'm sure you feel sad. Some of you probably feel frustrated, like I did when Rabbi, I had that conversation with Rabbi Lubin, But if I can be honest with you, I actually think it's exciting. It's exciting because it means we have an unbelievable opportunity to make a huge difference. God has, for whatever reason, chosen you guys to make a huge difference. And so he set up the culture for you to be able to do that. We have a huge opportunity opportunity to make a difference in your local neighborhood, in your local town, in your local county, and especially in the state of New Jersey. And the reason for that is we are surrounded by people who don't know Jesus. We're surrounded by people who are disconnected from the church. We're surrounded by people who describe themselves as irreligious or as nuns. Now, when I say nuns, I don't mean Catholic nuns with a habit, okay? I know some of you just had a little bit of PTSD. What I mean is, <laughs> the people who on the, on the surveys that go out, on the census that goes out, when it comes to what is your, the question around what is your religious affiliation, they tick none. These are the people who are surrounding us. See, the statistics actually make us modern day followers of Jesus a lot like Jesus. See, let me explain. See, whenever you read... The, the stories in the Bible. one of the things have you ever noticed that there's, there's this thing that all these people who follow Jesus were far from God? Jesus surrounded himself with people who were disconnected from the church, who were far from God. I think this is about the most interesting thing to me about Jesus. He came as a religious leader, but he spent little time with religious people. He was sent from God but he didn't pursue godly people. He pursued the people who are far from God. It's one of my favorite things about Jesus. If I had to sum it up, it would be this. This is my favorite thing about Jesus. People who were nothing like Jesus, liked Jesus, and he liked them back. The reason Jesus had so many unchurched people following him around was because he liked them. They liked him and he liked them back. In fact, the people that felt most uncomfortable in the temple at the time were the people, the people who felt most connected to God. They were the ones who flocked to hear Jesus speak. They flocked to hear his message. And I believe that what was true of him individually has to be true of us corporately. What was The thing that drove Jesus individually needs to drive us collectively. People who are nothing like us should like us and we should like them back. Which is why I believe this church has an amazing opportunity to impact New Jersey. Could you imagine if the thousands of people, the thousands of families who live within driving distance of a liquid campus who were nothing like Jesus, liked Jesus? Could you imagine what that would look like? Could you imagine what it would do to New Jersey? Could you imagine what it would do to the country? If the thousands of people who live within a 30-minute driving distance of a liquid campus liked Jesus... Imagine if the people who lived outside of the walls of this church who feel like they are the most disconnected from God felt comfortable either coming on site to this church or watching a message online. Could you imagine if they felt far from God but they were comfortable coming here? Wouldn't that be incredible? Wouldn't it be absolutely amazing if whenever people in New Jersey, whenever they thought of Liquid Church, Their response was, you know what? Those people at Liquid Church, they're crazy. They sing. They put their hands up in the air. They pray and they all those things. I don't understand any of that stuff. But the people from Liquid Church are the most compassionate, most generous people in our entire community. Could you imagine if the... Reputation of Liquid Church was whenever somebody saw a Liquid T-shirt or saw a Liquid logo somewhere or or it came up in the news or whatever, wherever they heard the name Liquid Church, they instantly thought, you know what? I don't know if I believe anything they talk about about that book they read, about what they say about Jesus, about what they say about a resurrection, about what they say about where I'm going to go when I die, but... I want my son or I want my daughter to marry somebody from that church because they are the most high integrity people in this entire community. Can you imagine what that would do? Is there anybody with me today? Could you imagine the impact that that would have? Could you imagine if the reputation of this church was, hey, I don't know at all if I believe anything that they say about eternal life, but I'm going to hire somebody from that church because they are the most high integrity, truthful people in our community. Could you imagine if when people thought of Liquid Church, they were happy that Liquid was in the state of New Jersey, that they were aware that Liquid was in the state of New Jersey, and that New Jersey was different because Liquid was present. Could you imagine the impact that that would have? As my old boss says, while Christians may be criticized for what we believe, we should be famous for our compassion and our generosity. While we can be criticized for the stuff that we say, the stuff that we do, the commitments we have, the way that we pray, the way that we give, and, and we, we can be criticized for all of that. But we should be famous for our compassion and for our gener- generosity. Now if liquid's going to have this conversation, if any church is going to have this re- sort of reputation, then all of us need to resist the things that make us resistible. We have to resist the things that make us resistible to those people who are outside of the church. But how do we do that? Well, luckily Jesus gives us a clue. And we read this clue in a book written by a guy named Luke. We call it the Gospel of Luke. Now, Just to catch you up a little bit, Luke was this guy who wasn't an eyewitness to the things, the life, the teachings of Jesus. He wasn't a part of that. He wasn't an eyewitness. But he says that he conducted a thorough interview, a thorough investigation. He made sure to talk to eyewitnesses, and then he wrote all of his findings down. So here's the deal. If you're here at church today just simply because somebody bribed you with lunch, because you lost a bet, or because you promised your mom that you would come to church one day or you would watch online. If that's why you're here today and you're just investigating Jesus, if you're just investigating faith, if you're just investigating church and the Bible, then you're gonna love this because Luke is your guy, okay? He was in exactly the same boat. So Luke, he wrote this about uh, one incident in Jesus' life. He starts with this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Now let's just pause for a second here. Let me explain something. The tax collectors were Jewish people who had paid the Roman government for the opportunity. They bought the right from the Romans to tax their fellow Jews. So they were ostracized. They were the people nobody wanted to hang around with. Think of Boston Red Sox fans. They were the Boston Red Sox fans of the first century, okay? So there's tax collectors there, and then there were sinners there. Now think of those as like the Atlanta Braves fans. Oh, well, that one didn't go down too well, did it? (laughs) Clearly, there's Atlanta. All right. Sinners were the people who had made this decision that God's law was too stringent for them to follow. They they couldn't keep up. So they just decided, I'm not going to do that. So then Luke continues. He says this, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law... Muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So just to to catch you up and summarize a little bit, there are two sorts of people, two groups of people in Jesus's audience right now. On the one hand, there's the tax collectors and sinners, people who are far away from God. And then on the other hand, there were these religious leaders, the Pharisees, who were more like Jesus, but didn't like Jesus. They were more like him because they were religious. They followed the law. They understood the scriptures. They, they went to temple on a regular basis. They were more like Jesus, but they didn't like Jesus. And Jesus was well aware that both groups of people were very confused about how God viewed people who were far away from him. So he tells this parable. Jesus starts this parable with them. He says this, and Luke records it. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Now, right out of the gate... Jesus is showing us his brilliance as a teacher. See, he understood that everybody who was in his audience understood what it meant to be around shepherds. They'd been around sheep their whole life. In that culture, they understood this. So Jesus was speaking directly into the culture of the time. It would be like Jesus saying to us, okay, so imagine you're driving down the New Jersey Turnpike right? We would all get it. We would all understand it, right? This was his version of that. So Jesus is, he's so good. He's talking to a situation that everybody knew. And he continues, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And again, I, I imagine all the people at this moment, they're leaning in and they're nodding and they're looking at each other and they're going, yeah, 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 of course, that's what happens. We, we get it. We get it, Jesus. They're very responsive to Jesus' message, unlike the 11 o'clock. And when he finds it, Jesus continues. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Now, again, this is going to seem, this might seem weird to a 21st century audience, but this resonated with Jesus' first century audience. They understood exactly what Jesus was talking about. the, The example that he provided was perfect for them. So he continues. Then he, the shepherd, calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Now, when Christians hear this story in church, and I'm sure most of you have probably heard that story, even if this is your first time in church or your first time in a long time in church, you may have heard this story before. But when Christians hear this story, At this point in the story is when everybody starts making Christian cow noises. You've heard the, right? Mm. Mmm. 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 This is the point in the story where Jesus' audiences and most Christians are going. they're, They're doing what? They're going. These are the quietest cows. I've ever heard. I thought I'd hear some Jersey cows today. So at this point in the story, Jesus' uh, audience goes, way better. And while we make those cow noises in church during this part of the story, we miss how illogical this story is. You see, no shepherd in his right mind would ever leave the 99 sheep behind. In fact, the last time that I was in Israel, I actually got to spend an entire afternoon with a Bedouin shepherd just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And here's some footage that we actually shot during that trip. I got to spend a whole afternoon with this guy. I watched him walk around and feed his sheep. I watched him water the sheep. Um, I, we, got the, we had the herd surrounding us. Uh, and, and during this, I learned so much about the Bible. One of the most important things I learned, one of the most impactful things I learned was when I saw this sheep. That was injured. And because it was injured, it couldn't keep up with the flock. So at a certain point in the afternoon, it literally just sat down and just waited. And the shepherd and the flock took off up the hill. It was amazing to me to see this happen because the shepherd weighed up the cost of what would happen if he stayed behind for this one sheep. He might lose the entire flock if he came back for this one sheep. And straight away, I thought of this parable that Jesus shared. And what I realized in that moment was this is not a story about a lost sheep. Jesus was telling a story about a shepherd who went to irrational lengths to find the lost sheep. It wasn't about the sheep. It was about the shepherd. You see, a shepherd leaving 99 sheep to go after one makes no logical sense until that one is you or someone you love. It makes no logical sense until you're the one who's lost, until your family member, your child, your sister, your spouse, until they're the one. Then it starts to make sense. But while Jesus may have been making an illogical story, the point was very, very clear. You see, when we lose something of value, we focus on what's lost to the neglect of what is unlost. When we lose something of value, we focus on what is lost to the neglect of what is unlost. I mean, you all experienced this. Have you ever lost a cell phone? Have you ever felt the panic of knowing you left your cell phone in an Uber Now, in that moment, you're not focusing on what's unlost. Well, at least I've got my watch or at least I've got my iPad. You're worried about... So does that make sense? You don't focus on what is unlost. You focus on what is lost. And when you lose something of value, I mean, it is not helpful for you to think about the stuff that is unlost. That doesn't help the situation. When, I, uh, when my wife and I had our third daughter, we went to a... Um, New Year's Day party, and at that party we lost one of our kids. <laughs> well, I need to be more truthful we're in church. I <laughs> lost one of our kids. You see, my wife uh, had—we had our third daughter. She was just an infant, and, and it, you know, it was a New Year's Day party, and we we're at a friend's house, about 60 people around. At a certain point during the day, my wife came up to me and says, "Hey, Dave, I need to go and uh, feed the baby." So can you look after the other two? And I did what any responsible dad would do. I said, sure, and then completely forgot about it. <laughs> Just Guys, am I right? Just went back to doing exactly what I was doing. And then about 25 minutes later, I went, what did Meg ask me to do? Was it the, oh, all oh, the kids. So, you know, I went outside, responsible dad, found the eldest, my eldest daughter, Chelsea. She was about seven at the time, but I couldn't find Ella, our middle daughter, who was about four years old at the time. Looked around outside. Nobody, couldn't see her anywhere. Went inside. Couldn't see her anywhere. Went back outside. Started asking, quietly, anybody seen little four-year-old, blonde hair, pink skirt? Anybody seen? Oh, I think I saw her about fifteen minutes ago. Okay, husbands in the room. Husbands watching online. You know that feeling. You all know that feeling. <laughs> oh, if my wife finds out. <laughs> Ooh, this is not going to go well. So my heart got elevated. I started running around a little bit more, and I went back inside the house, and that's when I noticed that the screen door at the front was slightly ajar. Ajar enough for a four-year-old little girl to wander through. And of course, that was the exact moment that my wife came out from feeding (laughs) and said, where are the kids? husbands again. You know that feeling? Oh, crap. It would not have been in, <laughs> helpful or to my physical well-being for me in that moment to say, well, she's gone, but we've got these other two. <laughs> like, I figure we're still up. Meatloaf was right. Two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> we're good here. That wouldn't have been helpful, right? My wife wouldn't have gone, okay. No, but we, it's not helpful for us to dwell on what's unlost at the expense of what's lost. Because when you lose something of great value, it is human nature for us to focus on the thing that's lost, not the thing that's not lost or unlost. Before I move on, I feel like some people need closure here, right? <laughs> feel like there's some tension rising. So I just wanna wrap up that story for everybody who needs that little bit of closure, okay? So um, my wife, I had to tell my wife, she said, <laughs> I've lost one of the kids, I don't know where they are. And so at that point, she escalated everything. The party shut down, 60 people went out looking for this little four-year-old girl. People started getting in cars. I started running around the neighborhood, couldn't find her anywhere. About 15 minutes goes by. It felt like 15 days had gone by. It was so stressful. And then I hear somebody yelling, we found her, we found her, we found her. Even in that moment, I didn't feel great about it. I didn't know how they found her. I went running around the corner. People were pointing into into this house that was around the corner and about a quarter of a mile up the street. And I ran to that house, opened the door, and there's my little four-year-old girl looking at me eating a packet of chips and just said, hey, Dad. (laughs) See, what had happened is she had wandered out the front door, had wandered around the neighborhood, and ended up just in front of a house and thought, I'll go in. And the, the nice lady who found her brought her in, gave her a packet of chips, and called the police. And just as I got there, the police showed up. What made the story worse was on the way from the party to this woman's house, remember New Year's Day, Ella had found herself a pair of sunglasses that were on the side of the road and an empty bottle of beer. (laughs) So apparently she knocked, four-year-old girl, pink dress, knocked on this door wearing a pair of sunglasses with an empty beer bottle and went, hey. (laughs) Now I still don't understand why the woman called the police, but you know, it (laughs) it only took like half a dozen home visits before everything was okay and we're in the clear true story. I had to explain why I was a pastor. I was a pastor and there was a mistake and she found the. They're not her sunglasses. It's not her beer bottle. Um, so okay, that closes the story off. Okay. The point is we, we found the thing that was lost. Jesus's point in telling this story about the lost sheep or about the shepherd who goes out to find the sheep is that God has this irrational, this illogical drive to connect with people who are disconnected from Him. God views disconnected people like the lost sheep in this story. He views them as something of great value that has been lost. And the reason Jesus was so focused on people who were outside of the church is because they were lost. And He wanted to invite them back into God's family. And do you know what determines how far we're willing to go to find something that is lost? Well, it's with the value that we place on that thing. And God places such value on people who are disconnected from him that he sent his son to find them. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And we should be about the same thing, right? Amen. Well, it might seem obvious that the church should be focused on the lost, on lost people. In reality, the gravitational pull of every church is towards the found. The gravitational pull of every church is towards the insiders. In church, we often focus on the 99 instead of the one. Again, can I just talk to the Christians who are in the room? Christians who are watching online. If if, again, you're one of those people who this is your first time, maybe you got invited. You can check out for just a second, okay? I just wanna talk to the people who call themselves followers of Jesus for a second. Here's what I need you to know. Your friends who are unchurched your family members who are in church, they already know this. They already know. They know that it's so easy for people who attend church things to focus on church things. And without even realizing it, we start creating language and liturgies and practices that make us feel like we're safe inside this exclusive club, but it leaves unchurched people out. And they feel left out. Because the gravitational pull of the church is towards the insiders. But the gravitational pull of God is the opposite. Amen? Amen? He wants to find the lost. He wants to find the lost to remind them that they are valuable to him. So here's my question for you today. Do, you, do your family and friends know they are valued by God? Do they know it? Do they see it? Do they feel it from you? Remember what my friend Rabbi Lubin said. He said, the authority of a rabbi is determined by the behavior of his followers. So if our rabbi Jesus values people who are far from him so much, shouldn't we value them too? Shouldn't we be doing everything in our power to make people who are far from God feel welcomed in this building? Shouldn't that be our driving force church to make them feel loved and accepted and welcomed? Isn't it our responsibility as followers of Jesus to make sure disconnected people know that without a doubt they are valued by God? It is. And the answer to the question is obviously yes, right? We'd all say yes, that's the answer to the question. But do we show that in the way we act? You see, here's the thing, guys. It's your responsibility as a church, to let your community know that they're valuable to God. It's your responsibility to let them know that this church is for them. That's how we will make a difference in our communities. The way that this church becomes irresistible to this local community or to the communities wherever you're watching from is by letting them know we are for them that God is for them. My friend, Jeff Henderson, he used to put it this way. For far too long, the church has been known for what it's against. We want to be known for what we're for. Especially in the most recent political climate here in the US, especially with all the social turmoil that's going on, especially in the middle of a pandemic, the church has become, become known for what we're against. And it's time for us to be known for what we're for. So let me ask you directly, Are you for your family and friends who are lost? Are you for them? Are you for your neighbor who's disconnected from God? Are you for the people you work with, the people you go to school with, the people you commute with on the train, the people who are sitting in the cars around you in traffic jams? Are you for them? Are you for the people of New Jersey? Well, if the answer is yes, then you have to let them know that you're for them. We need to let them know. We can't expect them to come to us if they don't know that we're for them. And this happens in a number of different ways. It happens by the way we interact with them when we're out at the supermarket, when we're at the mall, when we're at a restaurant, when when we're being served by somebody. How we act towards them determines whether or not they know that we're for them. If you leave a 10% tip for somebody on a Sunday, that person does not feel like they're for them. If you close the gap on the highway because you don't want somebody to get in and you've got a fish sticker on the back of your car? Yo, come on. Seriously. Seriously. The way that we speak, the way that we communicate, the language that we use, the way that we respond to them, the way that we post on social media, the way that we comment on social media. That determines whether or not those people know that the church, and by extension, Jesus is for them. You see, people will connect with this church before they connect within this church. People will connect with this church, with you guys, before they connect within this church, whether that's online or on-site. And they connect with this church when they interact with you. That's why you need to remember that in everything you do, everything you post, everything you say, you are representing the God you say you believe in. We need to remember that people will experience Jesus in you before they experience Jesus in person. People will experience Jesus by the way you act with them and how you act, and even more importantly, how you react will determine whether or not they even want to connect with Jesus. We tell the people of New Jersey that they are valuable to God, that we are for them, and through the way that we interact and engage with them. We let them know that Jesus is everything we say he is by being everything he says we are. Let me restate that. We let the people, the unchurched family and friends who you have in your life now, think of that person. Think of that unchurched person that you wish would come to church with you, who you know needs Jesus, but doesn't know Jesus yet. You let that person know that Jesus is everything you say he is by being everything Jesus says you are. And Jesus says that you are supposed to be for them, for your community, for the people of New Jersey. After all, the most famous Verse in the entire Bible starts with the word for, for God so loved. So here's my question for you today, folks. Who can you encourage this week? Who do you need to remind that God is for them, that this church is for them, and that you are for them? Who is that person? And how? Can you encourage them? How can you encourage the people around you? Even this afternoon as you leave church and you go about the rest of your day, how can you encourage the people that you interact with, the people at the supermarket, the people at the restaurant, the guy who's pumping your gas, praise Jesus for Jersey. How can you let those people know that you are for them and that as an extension of that, Jesus is for them? How are you going to do that? happens in the way that you love them, welcome them, accept them, speak to them, respond to them, act towards them, and react towards them. We can do this and it will make a huge impact. Let's pray. God, I just want to thank you right now that everybody under the sound of my voice is loved by you. God, you are for all of us. And I just thank you for that truth, Jesus. God, I thank you that you sent your son to invite us back into your family because you are so for us. And so God, I wanna pray right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us opportunities to let other unchurched people, to let people who are disconnected from you know that you want to invite them back into your family as well. Help us, to know, help us to let them know that you are for them. Give us those opportunities, God, and then remind us, prompt us, poke us. Hit us in the back of the head if we need to, just to remember to show these people that we are for them. And if we're for them, that's because you are for them. God, would you do amazing things in the coming weeks through this church? as we step out in faith as individuals and reflect our rabbi, reflect Jesus's love for the people who are around us. And may communities throughout New Jersey know that you are for them through the actions of the people of this church. I just wanna pray all of this in the amazing, healing, holy, powerful, a logically and irrationally loving name of Jesus. And everybody agreed and said, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to check out Liquid Church for a weekend service, small group, outreach, or clean water trip, you can find out more about us online at liquidchurch.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or share it with your friends. Thanks again for listening.